interesting to begin tonight with a reflection, or you could even think of it as a pop quiz for those of you who like competition or so one question what is this just notice the different responses that come to mind really superficial basic answer that wouldn't get a very good grade would be something like you know I'm here at IMS at a meditation retreat. It's not that it's wrong. Or, I don't know what this is. And this seems like a trick question. That's slightly better. (laughs) There's some humility and suspicion, (laughs) which sometimes can be good. Like suspicion about, maybe I don't know all the facts. Maybe I'm not that clear. When we're not clear, it's good to know that, right? That's a step in the right direction. That's an experience that's not uncommon on retreat, where in a moment we wake up to some degree, the mind becomes more clear, mindfulness reappears, reestablishes itself. And often the first flavor of what's known as disorientation, having been lost in thought or caught up in whatever, then the first thing mindfulness is aware of is the reverberation of having been deluded, having been lost in thought, caught up in some drama, entangled, obsessing. So we don't know. And then maybe you might answer something like, uh, it's just the activity of the mind and body. So the answer to the question, what is this? It's just activity of body and mind. And that's a kind of question we could give whether or not we know what that means. Because <laughs> we've heard it a lot on this retreat, for example, and a lot of us have heard that, know that that's sort of the right answer. Um, so we can give it back. And then there's the response, well, response to the question, what is this? Well, sensations are being known. Sounds and sights, smells and tastes are being known. Thoughts are being known. Sometimes these objects of experience are known with clarity and sometimes not. And of course, there's stickiness, there's clinging. It's not a smooth, easy, light, free ride for the mind. So that's a good answer. And maybe someday our response would be silence, right? And instead of saying, speaking the answer, the mind would simply know things as they are, without any unnecessary filters or confusion or clinging. Here are a few quotes from Saida Utejaniya talking a little bit about this experience of freedom. He says, 
We don't complain about what is happening. Everything is experience. Whatever is happening is happening through cause and effect. They do their job, we do our job. What should we do? We just recognize what is happening. Everything is nature. And another, don't identify with the effort. Instead, recognize that what is doing the work is effort plus whatever qualities are involved. These qualities are at work, not I. And then the last one. There is a well-known saying in Burma, meditation is meditating, but you are not meditating. When we begin to practice, we think I am practicing, but later we realize that it is just the mind that is practicing. This is a natural progression in the development of awareness. So tonight I wanna talk about the five aggregates of clinging which is a way of talking about this mind, the categories of this mind-body experience, and the tendency of the mind because of habit to cling to those categories of experience. So this is laid out, suggested as a mindfulness practice in the Satipatthana Sutta. This is a collection of the Buddha's teachings on mindfulness, one of the most famous of the Buddha's discourses. It's not clear whether it's one talk or a collection of talks that got compiled later after the time of the Buddha. But in any case, it has um, several meditations offered, organized into four groups, the four foundations of mindfulness, or the four ways of establishing mindfulness. And the fourth category is a little bit um, <clears throat> maybe more obscure. The first is mindfulness of body, then mindfulness of feeling, which we'll talk about tonight. Mindfulness of mind is the third. And the last is mindfulness of dhammas, usually with a small d, same word as dharma, which is the sca- Sanskrit version. So dhammas sometimes gets translated in this particular case as mental qualities or mental objects. And for me, what a helpful phrase is, this is the place where the Buddha says, use these maps that I've outlined to know your experience. So we're being mindful of the way it is through the use of these maps that the Buddha provided. So one of the maps, the first one he talks about in this section is the map of the hindrances. Steve talked about the torments a couple nights ago. That's the hindrance, greed, anger, restlessness, sleepiness, and doubt. And then the next two categories, the five aggregates and the six sense gates, these are maps that help the mind go beyond its superficial notion of what this is, basically answering that question I asked at the beginning so that we're not destined to always say, what's me, idiot? (laughs) Of course, it's me here at IMS on retreat. And there's the capacity in the mind to go beyond our superficial way of being interested. Because you know, 
when somebody says, pay attention to how it is, the first thing attention meets is the idea of what we think is going on. And it's pretty easy for us to be satisfied, for the mind to be satisfied with that. Okay, I'm sitting, and there's another 44 minutes to the sit. <laughs> not, not sure I'm going to make it. And that feels like we're being mindful. And on you know, the most basic level, there is an awareness, but there's no awareness that the thought is just a thought. Or there's no awareness of the identification with the thought. So we say the mind is identified or caught in the content. So in that section, I'll just mention the last two maps. So then after the five aggregates and the six sense gates, which are related teachings, just ways of uh, mapping our mind-body experience so that the mind is less likely to get caught in concepts of what this is. So looking at this experience, present moment experience, in terms of the sensitivity of the six sense gates or the five aggregates, and I'll go through this in detail tonight, looking at body and mind. And so body is one of the five, and then the Buddha divides the mind up into four categories because it's interesting to do it this way. It draws the attention to experience, to look at the feeling, to look at perception, to look at mental formations, and to look at consciousness, these four categories of mind. And then after that, the Buddha offers the map of the seven factors of awakening, these wholesome qualities of mind when in balance lead inevitably to insight. It's like when the mind has these qualities well established and in balance, the mind can't help but see things as they are. And then the last is the four noble truths. That's what a balanced, strong mind sees. It sees things in terms of the truth or the reality of unsatisfactoriness, its cause, its cessation, and the path, the path of practice. And that's the four, four noble truths. So in this section where the Buddha's talking about the five aggregates, he says, furthermore, the practitioner remains contemplating mental qualities in and of themselves with reference to the five clinging aggregates. So you almost always put the word clinging with aggregates, with these categories of experience. Body and mind is a short version, or body and these four qualities of mind. Feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. Contemplating mental qualities in and of themselves with reference to the five clinging aggregates. And how does one remain contemplating on mental qualities in and of themselves. There is the case where a practitioner discerns such as form, such, such, as, such its origination, such its disappearance, such as feeling, such its origination, such its disappearance. Same with perception, it's arising and passing, mental formations and consciousness, they're arising and passing. And this way one remains contemplating these factors in and of themselves. 
contemplating the origination and the passing away. And the last stage, or one's mindfulness that there are mental qualities, is maintained to the extent of knowledge and remembrance. And one remains independent, unsustained, not clinging to anything in the world. This is how a practitioner remains contemplating mental qualities in and of themselves with reference to the five clinging aggregates. So this word aggregates is coming from the word kanda, kandas, and uh, it's translated from, uh, or it means pile or a grouping, a bundle, a heap, and evidently also could mean a, the trunk of a tree. And it's not clear, at least from some of the scholars I looked at, why the Buddha chose this word. It was just an ordinary wor- word at the time of the Buddha. But then he made it a very important psychological, spiritual world, word in terms of his teachings, combining it with clinging, clinging aggregates. These clinging, these categories of experience the mind tends to cling to. Or if he took it because of its meaning trunk of a tree, it might be that these are common fuels for clinging. You know, the wood of a tree, common fuel for fire, so that perhaps that word Kandas was used for that reason. But in any case, in the way that the word is used, it's very clear the Buddha is talking about the habit, the strong tendency of the mind to cling to the experience of body-mind or to cling to this, to this unfolding experience that's being known. He mentioned, mentions that in the very first talk he gave after his awakening, he sought out sought out his previous friends who had been practicing with him, and he gave the very famous talk on the Four Noble Truths. And near the beginning of that talk, when he's talking about this First Noble Truth, and you heard this last night, I think Deborah read it last night. Now this, monks, is the noble truth of stress. Birth is stressful, aging is stressful, death is stressful, sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair are stressful. Association with the unbeloved is stressful. Separation from the love, loved is stressful. Not getting what is wanted is stressful. In short, the five clinging aggregates are stressful. So it's really the Buddha's short answer for what is suffering. Suffering is the mind clinging to the categories of experience, clinging to the mind and body experience. And this gets covered, uh, this concept of the five aggregates gets used quite often in the suttas. And it's not so much, some people think about the five aggregates as the answer to who am I, or I'm the five aggregates. And in a way that works. But when you look at how the Buddha taught, he wasn't actually that interested in answering the question, who am I or who are you? He was interested in addressing the question, what is dukkha, what is suffering? What are the causes and how to remove those causes for suffering, for stress? So it's important, I think, when we look at these five categories of our experience, we're not trying to figure out who we are or what this is even, but more pragmatically, how is it that the experience of stress arises for us? How is it that it can 
fall away. He said, the Buddha said, formally and also now, I make known just suffering and the cessation of suffering. And that's often how the Buddha referred to the aggregates as a burden. And it can be misunderstood, uh, if not read carefully, that the Buddha's teaching that having a mind or having a body, the experience of contact, sense contact, touching, seeing, having a thought arise in the mind, that is by its very nature bad or painful. But he didn't say that. He's saying that it's the clinging that these categories of experience, um, they're susceptible to the mind's clinging given the tendencies of mind, given what's been set in motion, the mind's habit is to cling. Sound is just sound, sight is just sight, touch is just touch, thought is just thought. It's neither good nor bad. It's the clinging, it's when a person, the mind clings that we say there is suffering. Here's another discourse from the Buddha. Practitioners, I will teach you the burden, the carrier of the burden, the taking up of the burden, and the casting off of the burden. Listen and pay close attention. I will speak. As you say, Lord, the monks responded. The Blessed One said, And which is the burden? The five clinging aggregates, it should be said. Which five? Form as a clinging aggregate, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness as clinging aggregates. This practitioner is called the burden. And which is the carrier of the burden? The person, it should be said. This this venerable one with such a name, such a clan name, this is called the carrier of the burden. And which is the taking up of the burden? The craving that makes for further further becoming, accompanied by passion and delight, relishing now here and now there, For example, craving for sensual pleasures, craving for becoming, craving for non-becoming. This is called the taking up of the burden. So here the Buddha is clearly pointing to the cause of suffering. It's the craving, the grasping of these different experiences. In fact, the way this is, the way the Buddha taught, there's really nothing else to crave whenever there's craving, it has to be for one of the five aggregates because the whole point of the map is to categorize experience. Everything that could be experience is the five aggregates. Body, including the five physical senses, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness is all inclusive. So if there's going to be craving, It's going to be for the five aggregates. And then he ends by saying, and which is the casting off of the burden? The remainderless dispassion, cessation, renunciation, relinquishment, release and letting go of that very craving. This is called the casting off of the burden.
Ajahn Tanisaro uh, has a study guide on the five aggregates. He has this very interesting paragraph I thought I'd read. He's really talking about the sense of self that the mind constructs over and over and over again. It's really using the um, categories of experience as a fuel for the grasping, clinging process. It's uh, one of the images that's used at the time of the Buddha is the image of a fire. And the fire needs fuel to sustain its activity. So grasping, clinging, craving, these activities that we see as suffering or stressful, they need categories of experience. They need experience in order to happen, to arise. So here's how this monk explains it. He says, the sense of me and mine is rarely static. It roams like an amoeba, changing its contours as it changes location, sometimes expansive, sometimes contracted. It can view itself as identical with uh, one of these aggregates, as possessing a khanda, as existing within a khanda, or having a khanda existing within itself. So there's many different relationships we can have to these categories of experience. A thought, for example. I can be the one who owns that thought, that's my thought. That thought can be me, can exist in me. I can be in that thought. So there's different ways. It's not just one way the mind gets identified or caught. At times feeling finite, at other times infinite. Whatever shape it takes, it's always unstable and insecure. For the khandas, these objects of mind and body, providing its food are simple, simply activities and functions, inconstant and insubstantial. In other words, uh, in the words of the canon, the Buddhist teachings, the khandas are like foam, a mirage, like the bubbles formed when rain falls on water. They're heavy only because the iron grip of trying to cling to them is burdensome. As long as we're addicted to passion and delight for these activities, as long as we cling to them, we're bound to suffer. So the first step is to get a sense of how freeing it is to begin to deconstruct what we started tonight calling this, this experience of the body and mind, just noticing how freeing it is just to begin to deconstruct it so that the mind isn't uh, dependent on the concept or the first thought that comes to mind, who I am, what this is, what's going on here. There's enough interest and enough momentum in awareness, mindful awareness, that we can break it apart, see what's actually coming and going in the field of awareness. The Buddha says, just as with an assemblage of parts, the word chariot is used, so when aggregates exist, there is the convention a being or me, right? 
In the same way, it's a convention. We use the word me or Mark or myself, this person over here. These are conventions that really are pointing to a coming together of different categories of experience, different elements of experience. In the same way, a rainbow, you know, you can't really find the rainbow if you ever went looking for one. Or even a car, even something as simple as a car. Where is the car in the car? Is it the seat? Is it the carburetor? Is it the frame? No, it's when all those things are together and operating, we call it a car. And then it makes sense. So it's a coming together of different elements. And this is the thing, it's totally okay to have concepts, to have words, ideas. It's just a question of whether the mind is confused by, these, by this uh, process of, these, this convention, I should say, of naming things. So these, this teaching, the five clinging aggregates, is the Buddha inviting us to deconstruct our experience so that we're no longer confused by what the mind, the more superficial mind, takes this to be. So we're not limited by that, but we can still have a conversation with each other. It's not like we're averse to concepts. That's just another idea that the mind could cling to. So we're holding it lightly, understanding the purpose of these concepts Saida Utejaniya says, wisdom never believes, wisdom always investigates. And it's nice to know, uh, to have the sense that experiences that we know as we're practicing, as we go about our life, maybe instead of using the word experience or even the word object of experience, we could use the word appearance. There is this appearance of pain in the knee. There, this, there is this appearance of depression. There is this appearance of light, of form, of shape, of person. That word appearance helps us, helps the mind not grip so tightly on the conventions we use as we organize our experience with concepts. There are appearances and it's useful for the mind to be able to organize the appearances in our experience. And just this beginning of deconstructing can be quite powerful. The mind recognizing that there's another way of relating. Because we're so often relating through concept that it doesn't, a, um, arise in the mind that there's another way of seeing, that, that this is a limited way. The Buddha says, it's like turning upright what had been overthrown, revealing what was hidden, showing the way to one who was lost, or holding up a lamp in the dark for those with eyes to see. And we have that experience sometimes, like if we've been really contracted in some emotional state, and we sort of know it, but we keep getting pulled in and we're really struggling to get some space around it. And then at some point, it clears away, falls away. And because the mind had been so absorbed in that activity primarily for a long time, and now it's gone, 
And then it's the whole world appears fresh and alive, like we've been reborn. I have uh, an example, just came to me personally. I kind of like it as a simile for our practice. So we have an old back door at our house, looking out toward the backyard, screen door. And uh, you know how some of those screens, you painted the frame of the door so many times and paint gets splashed and bugs get squished. And so more and more of the space of the screen gets. So I would often, and it's a little warped. And we have a cat that when it wants to get back in, it jumps on the screen puts its claws in the screen and it's sort of tear, torn it in different ways. So it's, it's a messy screen. And because I, the, my programming is to be critical, when I'm at that back door, I notice all the imperfections of the screen. And I could be standing in front of the screen and I'll just see the screen. And it's like my reality. This screen needs to be replaced. Eventually had somebody replace the screen. So <laughs> this is in the past. But it still works as a simile. <laughs> but you know how that is. You can, you can be looking at the screen and you can be completely oblivious to the activity of the backyard, which is wild because <laughs> we, we don't take care of it. It literally is wild. <laughs> but the screen has a sense of being very static, you know, just, and partly because there's not a lot of obvious change and partly it's static because I have a strong opinion, you know, needs to be replaced, it's a mess, I don't like it, it's embarrassing, you know, these, and all that sort of is establishes it as a thing. Of course, a thing that relates to me, right? I have a personal relationship with those ideas of, of the screen and there's tension there. And then, I can, if, if uh, the local Buddha or teacher comes by and says something like, relax, re- relax your gaze, then the mind opens and it's actually possible to see right through the screen. You still see it, but the mind isn't obsessing on that visual form. It's opening to what's beyond and it sees this very alive world of things coming and going, lots of activity, the mind is naturally interested. It learns all kinds of things. Instead of being stuck in the cycles of, you know, why does our cat, how did our cat learn to do this in order to get back in? <laughs> I know just enough about behavioral psychology to know that I'm probably at fault. <laughs> I never should have let her in when she jumped up on the screen. <laughs> so there, you've heard the simile of the screen. I had another experience when I was a child that also, just as an example of this natural deconstruction. Um, so, you know how it was for a lot of us when back in the 60s, you'd fill a bathtub of water and then oldest first, right down to the youngest, I was the middle child. <laughs> and uh, so I'd be in the bathtub. It's always sort of a nice experience. And I, I remember just playing with my mind. It, it occurred to me later, I didn't really know what I was doing at the time, but I'd just be sitting back in the bathtub, relaxed, and I'd notice this shift in perception. 
So it would be sort of, initially it would be, I'm sitting here in the bathtub, <laughs> you know, bubbles and whatever else. And then I, the mind would relax and then something would shift. And I, I knew enough that something had shift, shifted, that it was different, but I wasn't sure what had happened. Just that it wasn't what it was before. So it was just some shift in consciousness from not being very mindful to just a natural state of presence, mindfulness. So not so conce- not the mind not so bound by concept. And because of not being so bound by concept, more lightness, more of a sense of freedom and space. And I noticed, I, I would go back and forth. You know, hey, I'm here in the bathtub. And I'd relax and it would shift. And I didn't know, I didn't, it didn't occur to me until much later and it started practicing and I realized what was happening in a, in a natural way. So what the Buddha is asking us to do with the five aggregates is not so complicated, not more complicated than that experience with the screen or being in the bathtub and the mind relaxing and dropping conceptual overlays and just experience being known in a more direct and immediate way and experiencing the freedom of the mind not so overrun, not so uh, bound up by concepts. So I'm gonna go through uh, some of these five aggregates in more detail. We probably won't get to all of them, but I'll at least cover the first three and mention the last two. So again, the Buddha um, organizes our experience as a human being, this, into five categories, form or body, the Pali word is rupa, and then the four categories of mind, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. So first, form or body. So the Buddha, right from the start, wants us to have an open mind about what form is. So he gives a simile. He says, on one occasion, the Blessed One was staying among some people, and I can't pronounce, on the banks of the Ganges River. There he addressed the monks, practitioners. Suppose that a large glob of foam were floating down the Ganges River, and a person with good eyesight were to see it, observe it, and appropriately examine it. To one, seeing it, observing it, and appropriately examining it, it would appear empty, void, without substance. For what substance would there be in a glob of foam? In the same way, a person sees, observes, appropriately examines any form, any aspect of body that is past, future, or present, internal or external, (coughs) blatant or subtle, common or sublime, far or near, to one seeing it, observing it, appropriately examining it, it would appear empty, void, without substance. For what substance would there be in form? Now this is challenging to our conventional ideas of body, that the Buddha is likening it to a glob of foam. Doesn't... (laughs) We would wish sometimes that our body could be experienced like a glob of foam instead of twisted metal or whatever else we tend to experience our body as, something heavy. 
So we can do a little experiment, and some of you have had this experience quite often in sits, where there's a lot of body awareness, and the experience of the body doesn't line up with the convention of the body, what we normally talk about to each other about the body. So if you just hold out your hand in some easy way, and it's better not to look at it because the visual perception reinforces the concept of hand. So close your eyes or look the other way. And we're simply feeling the sensations in the hand as they actually are. You don't need any special experience. Whatever is arising now in the hand is fine. And it's so clear that the experience of tingling or warmth or pressure or whatever that's being experienced is different than the image or the word hand. I mean, obviously they're related in the mind, but they're different categories of experience. And we really get a sense of what Deborah talked about last night. You can put your hand down if you like, or hold it up. <laughs> but we get a sense of what Deborah talk, talked about last night, the impermanence. Because when we're in this more direct relationship with sensation, not caught, the mind not caught by the image or concept of hand, my hand over here in this location attached to my body, my body, and it's just sensations, we really very quickly get a sense that it's a dynamic process. Sensation is a dynamic process. It isn't a fixed thing. But the concept hand, my hand, seems fixed because that concept is exactly the same concept my hand I had yesterday. So the concept doesn't have an appearance of change. In a way, by definition almost, concepts, they're designed, mental concepts are designed to bring stability to the swirl, the movement of this experience. And Part of the whole arising of dukkha, of stress, is that we have mistakenly, we're mistakenly trying to find safety through concepts, the stability of concepts, instead of finding safety by opening, coming into alignment with the way it is. Concepts are always unstable because they're not connected, they're not aligned. When we know that concepts are just concepts, well then we're back in the territory of Dhamma, the way it is. So the question is, can we have a mind that perceives 
perceives and uses concepts and images hand, but not uh, limited by these concepts. So the next category is feeling, feelings or Vedana. And here the Buddha likens it to the bubble. He says, now suppose that in the autumn when it's raining and fat, heavy drops, a water bubble were to appear and disappear on the water and a person with good eyesight were to see it and observe it, appropriately examine it. To one seeing it, observing it, appropriately examining it, it would appear empty, void, and without substance. What substance could there be in a water bubble? And he says it's the same with feeling. What substance would there be in feeling? So here feeling is the pleasantness and unpleasantness and neutrality that always arises. Whenever there's a sense contact, sense experience, seeing something, hearing something, touching something, thinking something, knowing consciousness knows an object of experience, then right there, arising right there, is a feeling tone. I'll just give a simple example. I was doing a little walking practice um, between 6.15 and 6.45, something like that. And uh, I noticed walking there, every time I saw one of those big trees on the, the driveway going this way, I noticed it was pleasant. And when I looked at the new driveway, you know, it used to be pretty rough, but now they just fixed it in May. Now it's really smooth. My mind likes orderliness. So that smooth tar, so nice for walking, and the straight sort of curved lines, it's sort of soothing for the mind. So I just noticed that I couldn't help it, but it was just pleasant. And then the gray bark against the green grass, that contrast, now all of that is just that the pleasantness is not something I do. I can't change that pleasantness. It's a conditioned response given what's been set in motion in this conditioned mind. Maybe it's even genetic. I'm, I, was, I think I read once that uh, human beings have a deep attraction, maybe find big trees pleasant because in the past, they were one way to get away from predators. You know, you'd climb a tree. And so we like these park-like areas, a little bit like that side of the driveway, where there's enough open space where you can see approaching predators and enough trees <laughs> that you can get up one if you need to. And it's just interesting to notice, start noticing what the mind finds pleasant and what the mind finds unpleasant and just see how this arises naturally. It's impersonal. It's not a mistake. It's what happens when the mind has this contact, this sense contact. It will be pleasant. Pleasantness will arise. Unpleasantness will arise. It will be neutral. Now, how many times today have we noticed the mind running away from something unpleasant or leaning forward into something pleasant. I don't know about you, but before the evening meal, I could smell the hot and sour soup upstairs where I was, you know, and I noticed, I like that soup, and I noticed the leaning forward. It was pleasant. 
So we want to, if we don't see feeling with wisdom, then it's going to confuse the mind. And the Buddha makes a big deal about this in the teachings on dependent origination, how it's the not understanding the feeling tone that very quickly leads to craving and grasping and becoming and birth and death and suffering. When the mind doesn't understand feeling, then the reaction to the feeling seems rational from the self point of view. Trying to get what's good, trying to get rid of what's ungood, not good. The next category is perception, sanya. The Buddha likens this to a a mirage in the hot season, a shimmering mirage, where it looks like there's water out in the future. And again, he asks, for what substance would there be in a mirage? In the same way, a practitioner sees, observes, and appropriately examines any perception that is past, future, or present, internal or external, blatant or subtle, common or sublime, far or near. To one, seeing it, observing it, appropriately examining it, it would appear empty, void, without substance. For what substance would there be in perception? And this is a very, can be a very supportive part of practice and a very confusing part of practice. In Joseph Goldstein's new book on mindfulness, he talks about when perception's in balance with wisdom and when perception is out of balance with wisdom. When it's out of balance with wisdom, then perception dominates the mind. You can think of examples of this. It happens all the time on retreat in a way because energy builds for people usually on retreat. So we have this phenomena we sometimes called yogi mind, you know, where people blow things out of proportion. So they have a perception, but there's all this mental energy with nothing to do. So the mind begins to construct a lot of meaning around the perception. We could ask people to raise their hand if this has happened to them (laughs) on retreat. You'd probably see a lot of hands go up. And the ones who aren't raising their hands are probably lost in yogi mind right now. Because this happens a lot when we lose our mindfulness. Bhante Gunaratana in his book, um, Mindfulness in Plain English, gives an example of, you know, late at night and, you know, maybe sleeping at the retreat and late at night you hear a dog barking. And just what the mind can do. I mean, actually, it's just sound being heard. but the mind very quickly categorizes that as a thought, you know, makes it a thought, maybe puts an image on it. Why do people have dogs? They're starving people, you know, why don't people train their dogs? I wonder if that dog's being attacked by coyotes. (laughs) You could go on and on. And you know how this is where the mind 
It's like uh, we create a monster and then we are frightened by it. You know, we manufacture something and then the mind is completely entranced by its construction, its own construction. It's as if we forgot that we put this all together. And it could be very positive. You know, if you're one who likes dogs, you could have just the other, you know, oh, it'd be so nice to have a dog protecting me, you know, a nice watchdog, or cuddled up with me in the bed, or, you know, whatever wonderful story that the mind could tell itself and get absorbed into. And it's all this process of the mind is in this world of sound and sight and thought and sensation coming and going very alive, alive with change. And then a perception, which is just a thought or just like a thought, an image. It's like a memory, right? Perception recognizes distinguishing sort of characteristics of the experience and organizes it into a concept. So it's easier to remember when something like that happens in the future. It's a, you know, it serves a very useful purpose to be able to perceive. It's not like we can do without it. But that if the mind grabs it with attachment, then it stops, it loses its mindfulness. So now it's limited whatever wisdom there is in that concept, that's it. Because the mind isn't, everything is unfolding out of that concept, out of the sort of whatever that identification leads to. But mindfulness, wisdom can be in balance or supporting perception. Because we use perception all the time in our practice using, like recognizing, oh, aversion. That's perception. It's aversion being known. So the mind, like the practice history is right there. All the useful information we've gotten from Dharma talks and study, right? That's what perception does. It organizes information in the mind. So when we perceive that the mind is in the vicinity of aversion, we'd like certain information to come up related to the perception the mind is in the vicinity of aversion, falling into the orbit of aversion, getting identified with anger. It'd be very appropriate to use perception to keep the mind in balance, to know how to keep the mind in balance. Whatever it might be, might be bringing some compassion. Oh, it's not easy feeling these sensations, being aware of this image. May the heart be at ease. Or it might be more of a wisdom information coming in. Oh, it's just a version being known. Or it might be more of an investigation information that comes in from the perception. So perceptions can be quite useful in practice and quite confusing in practice.
I'll give you an, an example of my own version of yogi mind. This is when I was at home and I walked over to the meditation center where I teach early in the morning and surprisingly, I was there before anybody, surprisingly the door was wide open, the lights were on and the air conditioning was on. So there's a lot, you know, I have a mind and body, I'm sensitive in the six ways, I see, I hear, I smell, I taste, I touch and I think, but very quickly my mind organized itself around a concept, right? Because of the perception. Something's wrong here. Somebody did something wrong. Somebody was irresponsible. I'm in charge. I need to do something, right? So I did. <laughs> Figured out who was there the day before. And I sent an email. It, was a, it wasn't a bad email. <laughs> but I did send an email wondering if they needed instruction on how to close up. <laughs> <laughs> just so happens that this person is somebody who's been around for, the center has been in existence for 20 years and this person's been around 20 years. <laughs> so anyway, um, <laughs> later, as you know, my mind relaxed just a little, other facts reasserted themselves, like the fact that I had seen an email not that long ago about the person who normally opens on Sunday morning was not able to open and was looking for somebody to open. And when I checked that email, which I had read but I had forgotten this part, he said, I'll come by early because the person who agreed to sub for him didn't have the key to open up. And he said, I'll come by early before I leave town and open up for you. <laughs> so that changed my perception pretty quickly. <laughs> so we get into a lot of trouble when our mind grabs onto the first perception and we stop being mindful, stop being present, stop holding perceptions lightly as it's just an appearance, okay? This has the appearance of being true, but I don't really know it's true. I, I work with that a lot with doubt. Like, should I be teaching the Dharma, for example, or should I, you know, be doing this? Can I do this? And I always hold things now I'm, because it's so painful not to. Well, that's just an appearance in the mind. It may be true. It may not be true. And I have so much confidence that I don't actually know the answer. Like, I don't have confidence that I'm incompetent. And I don't have perfect confidence that I am competent but I have a lot of confidence that I don't know. <laughs> and that seems like a useful way to move forward in life. <laughs> Letting things, and it's not like I resist any of the perceptions, like when th something goes well, the perception might be, well, that was good. That felt really good. Or if something doesn't go well, that didn't feel very good. So those perceptions are there, but I don't believe them as some ultimate truth. I must be good or I must be bad because I know I don't know. I know that that question doesn't actually need to be defined, that I can, the mind can leave it unformed. There's so much freedom in having that relationship with perception, leaving things unformed. Now just a few thoughts to work with the last day tomorrow of the retreat, and Sunday morning too, of course. But just common 
perceptions that are confusing, the perception of solidity, the perception of time, the perception of location, home, <laughs> for example. You know, these, these words, these concepts, these perceptions have a lot of pull for the mind. And to hold them lightly, we don't have to, the mind doesn't need actually the ground or the solidity that these perceptions, these concepts provide, seem to provide. And this, of course, is especially true with the concept or perception of self. We have these categories of age or these qualities of age and gender and race and sense of self-worth and status. And they can be very sticky. How the mind wants to go back and hold and see the whole world in terms of these definitions, see each other, categorize each other in terms of these ideas, these perceptions, who's in, who's out, who belongs, who doesn't belong. This is from Joseph Goldstein's book. He says, we live in the mind created world of self image or role. Today at lunch, some people were talking about going to New York City. And uh, one of the people said, everyone walking down the street is performing. And then another person added something like, they're acting out their identity. This is what we're all doing to some degree. And Joseph continues in this section. He says, this is the idea of ourselves that we, are, that we present to others, that we believe of ourselves. As soon as we identify with any role or image, it's already a limitation. It's like a mold that we've poured ourselves into and then wonder why we feel so contracted. We can also create limiting uh, spiritual self-images. This is when we get caught in the practice assessment tapes in our minds, identifying with the ideas that our meditation is going well, badly, or badly, what I call the good yogi, bad yogi syndrome. And then we project these assessments onto others and then suffer with the comparing mind. This is common um, as we end retreats to want to define our experience or what, who I am going home. Maintain some perception of ourself as having had a good retreat or a bad retreat. So we don't have time to go into the last two, but I'll just mention them again. So the next category is mental formations. And this is really a catch-all phrase. It's basically the mind, everything that is the mind, that's not feeling of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, not perception, the part of the mind that recognizes, remembers, and consciousness, the part of the mind that illuminates, that, that knows, cognizes. What does it cognize? It cognizes sight. Consciousness cognizes sound and smell and taste and touch. It cognizes thought too, right? So in this sense, consciousness is very pure, although 
with consciousness comes those mental formations which might be wholesome or might be unwholesome and with perception and feeling. And in this way, one moment of mind conditions the next moment of mind and on and on like this. So our job as practitioners is to begin to use this map the Buddha offers us, the five aggregates, the mind and body. This is mind-body happening. And then to apply what Deborah uh, talked about last night, to see the changingness of form, of feeling, of perception, mental formations and consciousness, that it's limited. It's not really going to provide satisfaction in the way the sense of self is looking for stability or satisfaction. And it's impersonal. It's all happening on its own, acting out causes and conditions, coming out of causes and conditions. So let's just sit for a moment. Let go of the words. Saida Utejaniya says, we don't complain about what is happening. Everything is experience. Whatever is happening is happening through cause and effect. They do their job, we do our job. What should we do? We just recognize what is happening. Everything is nature. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.